Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the U.S. impeachment trial continues. Are you still awake? Volkswagen has settled with Canadian courts on that whole diesel scandal. And more than 200,000 people have weighed in on government consultations on assisted dying reform. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, Did did anybody watch any of the um, impeachment stuff yesterday? Hello? I did. And honestly, I fell asleep watching CNN last night at like 1 o'clock in the morning. Woke up to the dog licking my face. Uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon, it will resume and kick off the impeachment trial with opening arguments and such after uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, process was determined yesterday. Uh, to talk more about all of this and give us an update and where we are from uh, going from here, Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, and he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So were you up last night watching the nonstop voting? No, eventually I gave up on it, knowing fully well where it was going to go. I, I eventually put bed over politics. Uh, they, and I guess it went on to like 2 o'clock in the morning. I was out by that time as well. So are Americans watching this? Are they paying attention? Uh, you know, Americans are watching it. It's been, uh, you know, it was across all the networks yesterday. It's across all the networks right now. We're about three minutes into the House managers making their opening statements. And while yesterday was a little bit on the policy side, a little bit on the rules side while they were trying to get things done, today is where that kind of meat and potatoes argument is going to come from the uh, Democratic managers of the House. And I think that is where you're going to see, uh, you know, a significant number of people trying to watch to either see how they plan to make make their case, or if you're kind of watching from the president's side, how they plan to spin their case. But there's going to be some kind of big moments over the next 24 hours, or at least over the next three days. So this is, in fact, where, as you said, the rubber hits the road, where actually each side states what they believe and what they think on all of this moving forward. Absolutely. We have three days that will total 24 hours for the Democratic House managers, and they are going to do what they have promised to do, that they're going to lay out their case that the president uh, breached the Oval Office, they breached his duties, and why the two articles of impeachment that are facing him uh, are not deficient, as the president's defense team has been saying. So at one time, this was all supposed to happen within two days. How did it get bumped to three? Uh, Obviously part of the process yesterday. Explain that. Well, so there appears to have been a little bit of an uprising inside the Republican Party. Uh, We are hearing from sources that in the moments before uh, yesterday's get-together, when there was a little bit of a Republican huddle happening, uh, that there may have been some comments and concerns from Republicans inside the room that said that the optics may not have looked well, that they weren't following kind of precedent that was set back in the 1990s. And that uh, that there was a kind of change of heart from Mitch McConnell. So he allowed for an additional day to be able to uh, present these cases. And he allowed for uh, the evidence that was collected during the House inquiry to be able to be automatically submitted, not have to go to a vote. And I think that came from some concerns and questions that it may look like uh, a cover up or it may give the Democrats an opportunity to claim things are being covered up if they were forced to have to vote things to be introduced into the record. Uh, and, and help us understand. 
understand the actual uh, charge itself, or one of the charges, in the sense that, uh, you know, we certainly know about the call to the Ukraine president. Uh, Donald Trump called it the perfect call. Um, it is what it is. I mean, everybody, nobody's denying what the call was. I, I guess it's whether this is an impeachable offense or not. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, the the articles of impeachment that were drafted against the president are linked to that phone call and the circumstances that surround that phone call. So you'll you'll hear the president say, or you'll see him on Twitter say, "Read the transcripts." Despite the fact that it's not a real transcript, it's just a summary of words. It still does uh, show that there is some uh, questions and uncertainty as to what the president's motive was when he was having that conversation with President Zelensky, talking about the Bidens, bringing up the Department of Justice. And trying to get investigations going. Well, all the while, this money that had already been appropriated by Congress was being held up. It was ultimately released, not in time. But this is kind of where the president is getting caught up in this whole, uh, uh, you know, abuse of power in that he was trying to put his own personal political uh, aspirations in front of that of what the national security of uh, of the U.S. was. And that's where uh, Democrats feel there was a breach. And therefore, that's why they feel that the article of impeachment for abuse of power is not deficient. Uh, it, it almost seems odd that, you know, yes, he did this, but, uh, you know, it's not really illegal. Uh, that being said, it certainly is pushing the boundaries of legality if it isn't illegal. Is that resonating with anybody? Well, a little bit. I mean, look, the Government Accountability Office in the United States has said that what the president did when it came to the withholding of funds, when it came to everything surrounding that phone call, did violate the law. It's being challenged by the Office of Management and Budget, who was responsible for holding that money back. But there is a group who is impartial that says that it was. Uh, What we're running into now is the president's defense, who is simply ignoring the simple facts that have been laid out uh, by House Democrats and through these articles of impeachment. If anybody was listening yesterday and if anybody's paying attention when Trump's defense team uh, starts speaking on Saturday, they are not defending the president's conduct. They're not bringing up the president's conduct or the reason that the president has uh, you know, found himself in the situation that he's in. They're talking about the process. This is what they've been doing now for the last several months. Yesterday, they were talking about the fact that the president wasn't afforded uh, you know, uh, uh, an opportunity to be able to defend himself in the house and it's simply a a you know a, a false statement it is factually incorrect but that is what they are going with they're trying to say hmm. sure the president might have done it but who cares because he's the president and he's allowed to do it you just simply don't like him uh so that being said donald trump's reaction on all of this he said he'd love to go at davos he said yeah i'd love to go and testify the lawyers don't want me will we see him there I why, why play both sides of this fence well because i think the president understands that there's an optics situation here and he needs to make it look like that you know to his base he's willing to go there and spill the truth you know let's you know call a spade a spade here the president could have spilled the truth at any point during the house inquiry when they were trying to you know defend him and he chose not to and he also put his fist down and said nobody inside the administration is allowed to talk as well which leads to these calls where if there's nothing to hide why are you not talking why are your men not talking and why are people from within inside the administration not coming forward to talk the president can say he wants to go the president also said he would love for John Bolton to go, but very obviously then said he didn't leave on the best of terms and there are national security things that I don't want him to talk about. So there is a risk that uh, the president understands anybody who's put under oath to talk may say something that could potentially be damaging. So uh, formalities yesterday, uh, today, getting into the, the meat and potatoes of what how each side feels. How does this move forward to the rest of the week? 
Well, this is going to be all House Democrats for the next three days speaking. They get 24 hours over these three days. Then the president's team is expected to pick this up on Saturday. Uh, They're already kind of warning to clear the day. They're likely going to use as much time as they can. There's no sitting on Sunday, so they'll likely pick it back up on Monday. If they use all 24 of their hours that are allotted to them, this will kind of push into next Tuesday. And then it's 16 hours of written questions from those that are in the jury that we have to get through Once all that is done, once there are some more votes that have been tabulated, uh, then we get into the kind of bulk of this, and that's whether or not there's going to be any votes to allow witnesses to come forward. And that's where we may see the Republicans start to, uh, you know, break in their unity with each other, because some may be in favor of having witnesses come forward. This is incredible to watch. Uh, Reggie Giacchini been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Lorraine Semmerfeld. <laughs> Let's talk about cars. Because I'm tired of talking about teachers. I'm tired of talking about Trump. I'm tired of the divisiveness. I'm tired of listening to people whine, including myself. Uh, Volkswagen pleads guilty to all Canadian charges in emissions cheating scandal. Says uh, the Canadian press, Volkswagen has pled guilty to all Canadian charges faced in the emission cheating scandal. The German automaker and Crown submitted an agreement statement of facts in a Toronto court this morning. Uh, Had wanted the automaker had wanted to enter a guilty plea to the 60 charges last month, but it was delayed. Offenses relate to the scandal in which the company cheated on its emission tests. The federal government charged the auto giant with 58 infractions under the Environmental Protection Act. Volkswagen also faced two counts of providing misleading information. More on that. Lorraine Somerveld is with us, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the spec, host of the Lemonade Car Show. With us now, Lorraine, how are you? I'm running away after that last hugging donut. <laughs> <laughs> hugging donut. There you go. Hugs and donuts. That's all we need in life, Lorraine. And a donut. nice ride, perhaps. Did you look at that donut thing? It started with someone on Twitter who has 20 followers wrote something. Talk about I know. spreading. I see how that virus spreads. Well, exactly. No I mean, come on. And, you know, there was just, we just did a thing earlier on about partisan politics and how it's, you know, mind you, the media is not helping that. I mean, no, am, I, no, am I doing anything to help the cause? I don't know. What can I do? What can I do to spread the love and the joy, Lorraine? Oh, you have such a good platform. I think you could do a lot of things. No, but what? I need to know what. You you said it right. The partisanship is so out of hand. We oh. have to, and it's going to have to come from us, like normal people. Everyone's sitting there going, "There's nothing I can do about this." Yeah, there is. Like, are, the are there that many people that are so set in their ways and how they vote? Like, is is does everybody either always vote conservative, always vote liberal, always vote NDP? Like, are, are, I, I can't I, believe I, that. I voted everything. So have I. And I'm an old, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Lot. I have voted for yeah. every one of them, and I'm damn proud of that. But I think what's happening now is people almost feel like they have to take a side and dig their heels in because they think everyone else is doing it. So yeah. I think we're stampeding over cliffs, not really looking. We're, you know... I like agree. In Russia, when there's a lineup and there's people in it, what do you do? We don't know. We found a lineup, so we so got in it. We're going to Well, there you go. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the herd mentality, that's I for sure. All right, that. getting to Volkswagen here, Volkswagen. where does this leave Canadian Volkswagen owners? Is everything good now? Is everything over? Is this it? Um, there's people that are saying they kind of dodged a bullet with Canada just letting them you know, plead guilty to the charges because they, we didn't do a really deep investigation, which we should have. We tend to sit on the coattails of the U.S., but we always have when it comes to cars because we drive the same cars. So 
yes, like on paper, it's like, cool, we're saving a lot of time and money by just accepting that they're pleading guilty to doing what everyone knows they did. And they're going to throw their former CEO in jail. Like, that's all good. But there's people saying, how come Canada didn't push harder and go after criminal charges? And are we shutting something up before we should have? Should we have been, you know, pushing Mm. for more information? I don't know how much more we're going to find out that the U.S., you know, and Germany didn't already. But um, like everyone else, everyone's got Volkswagen fatigue over this subject. Yeah. so what about those that have that purchased cars that were caught in this web in some way? Are, are they, for the most part, all happy? Have all those settlements uh, been resolved? Yeah, um, people that wanted it, as soon as they, you know, said, now, as of now, it's two years ago, I think you can start turning them in. I think anyone that wanted to has. I still know people that have said, no way, I'm keeping it. Again, we hit this gray area where Volkswagen is supposed to do a software update and then a hardware update. The headlines just go rushing past, and I think a lot of people are just kind of shrugging about it now, and that makes me think maybe we should have pushed harder for more investigations. Maybe, you know, maybe it, it's not the time to look away. I, I don't know. And the older the cars get, the less this matters, does it, or does it? Well, because they've stopped making diesel now. I mean, they're out of that yeah. business. So, yeah. uh, at the end of the day, this is a past problem for them. Can they just say, "Well, we don't do that anymore"? We oh yeah, they're. They're full steam ahead in what they're moving on to the next phase. This is about our ability to forgive and forget, basically, um, if that's what we're going to choose to do. We've talked before about Volkswagen has very loyal buyers, like incredibly loyal. That was my next point. Uh, Has this affected VW sales at all? Because when this went down, it was massive, and then it seemed to kind of blow over. And as you said, if you love the car, you love the car. If you don't, you don't. You know, sales in general are softening all over. Like sales, new car sales are down right, everywhere. Yeah. That's not new here, you know, yeah. in Canada. That's and that's everywhere. largely cyclical, is it not? Um, yeah, it, it chases after the economy. And people, even though our economy is doing well, people hesitate. The other thing is the used car market is just a bull. It's doing insane numbers because they're making better cars. Yeah. They're efficient. People are keeping them longer. All the reasons you're supposed to, people are doing it. And yeah. the new car people are going, how come they're not buying new cars? It's like, well, you gave us cars we don't have to trade in as often. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, and that's my way I'm, I'm saying, you know, largely cyclical. Uh, yeah. You know, it comes around again in what, another seven to 10 years. Um, so uh, as this moves through, is this the last chapter of this? Is there no? Is that it for, for VW? Is this story gone? I think so. Yeah. I, I think people, when they read that headline today, I think it didn't cause a lot of people to stop right. and probably read the whole article. Right. I mean, even the stuff being reported is a paragraph, and it's a stock paragraph from a press release. People just have so much more that they're contending with that this yeah. sounds like ancient history. Yeah, it's old. And All right, what are you driving? Actually, nothing. I had some surgery, so I'm recuperating. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> oh, I hope you're doing well. Oh, I'm fine. I'm just not out. I'm All not right. out and about in a new car. You're not, you're not <laughs> driving. People are driving you around now. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. not bad either. <laughs> well, you take care of yourself, Lorraine. I will. All right, Lorraine Sommerfeld with us, auto writer with Post Media and Motherload column in the Hamilton Spec, host of the Lemonade Car Show, and, you know, I thought she had nowhere to go. She's taken off on us already. Uh, and it looks like the Volkswagen story is now officially over. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been lots of chatter of late over 
um, medical assistance in dying and the laws that uh, I guess came into effect a few years ago, but were extremely limited. And almost immediately after uh, these laws were put forward, they were pretty much challenged. And uh, as a result of all of that, uh, has uh, forced another look at uh, at these at these conditions. And you know, as we've talked before, I'm sure that this will be an issue that continues to evolve uh, over time. But a, uh, a fascinating uh, look at the consultations that the government has been doing. More than 200,000 people have weighed in on the government's consultations on assisted dying reform. Uh, just the numbers alone seem incredible. To talk more about all of this, Jim Cowan is with us, chair of the board for Dying with Dignity Canada, and is on the line now. Jim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us about this consultation program uh, process that has just uh, completed, and 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 anything that has evolved out of that. Well, uh, two things under the uh, legislation which was passed a couple of years ago. It was uh, specified that there would be a parliamentary review uh, beginning in in June of 2020. So I think in anticipation of that, the government is soliciting opinion from Canadians, which I think is a good thing to do. And uh, I think it's great that as many Canadians as as have have uh, taken the time to complete the survey and uh, to offer their view. So that's one part of it. The second part is that there was, as you mentioned, there been there was a challenge. There have been a number of challenges to the uh, criteria that are set out in the legislation for medical assistance in dying. And one of the things that was put in the legislation was that your death must be reasonably, your natural death must be reasonably foreseeable in order to qualify. And many people, including me, felt that that was uh, too restrictive. That wasn't. Uh, something that the Supreme Court of Canada had called for, but the government put it in and it was challenged. And the uh, the Quebec court uh, before Christmas in a decision called Trouchon struck that down and said that uh, that was against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and gave the governments of Quebec and Canada until March of this year to fix the legislation. So the government has agreed that they will bring in legislation uh, to comply with that March deadline to remove that criteria and that your natural death must be reasonably foreseeable, or in Quebec, uh, the phrase is fan de vie, end of life. So there is that deadline, and that, combined with the parliamentary review, is the impetus for the consultation that's that's going forward. And the question is, will the government simply remove that criterion uh, from the legislation as they're apparently going to do in Quebec, without doing anything more, or will they make more amendments to the legislation? And I think government is consulting with Canadians on that. So just to explain uh, a death in the foreseeable future, meaning if you had some sort of terminal disease, uh, you're in great pain. Obviously, there's no, there's no chance of, of, of you recovering from this. And your death is imminent in the next, in, in the reasonable foreseeable future, as opposed to someone who has uh, uh, an incredibly painful or debilitating uh, condition, but they're, they're, it's not like it's a terminal illness where they're going to pass in a couple of months or so. That's the issue. And so yeah. people who have, uh, and the, the plaintiffs in the Trushan decision were exactly that. They were suffering from conditions which were, uh, intolerably painful to them, 
but the uh, they were not their death was not reasonably foreseeable or natural death was not reasonably foreseeable they could live for an indefinite period of time and so they didn't qualify for medical assistance in dying and the, the justice Baudouin in that case said that's not right that's contrary to the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in Carter and that decision should be struck or that provision should be struck down there was nothing in the Carter decision of the Supreme Court of Canada that required you to be at end of life or that your death be natural death be reasonably foreseeable it was all about ending the suffering that a particular individual found to be intolerable right um, are you concerned that any amendments, especially when it comes to a reasonable foreseeable death, will? are you concerned that the amendments will make this even more complicated? No, I think the, I think the right thing for the government to do, and what I hope they will do, is do what the Quebec government announced today, and they're simply going to take out the offending clause. And there's lots of protection in the existing legislation to prevent abuse, and there is... So far as I'm aware, uh, no evidence uh, anywhere in Canada that there has been any abuse of medical assistance in dying since it became lawful in 2016. So there is no, we don't, there's no need to put in additional safeguards or additional barriers if you take out that, that clause. There already are sufficient safeguards in place. Our medical professionals are very experienced in assessing people's capacity to uh, to to request and to receive medical assistance in dying, as they do all kinds of other medical procedures. So you're not concerned that just removing the clause and not putting something else in its place uh, uh, will lead to abuse? No, yeah. I mean, there's 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 no evidence of that, and I think that uh, if if one were to read the decision of Justice Baudouin. Uh, she goes through that very carefully about the adequacy of existing safeguards. And, and if you start to say, well, you know, if, if you have such and such a condition, medical opinions, you need three medical opinions, right. or you need to wait 30 days rather than 20 days, then what you're, you, you're sort of saying, well, okay, this is an additional safeguard, but it, what it really is is another barrier. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful we don't do that. The system has worked very well. And I think the government recognized at the time and continued to recognize that we need to we need to look at this. It was a it was a uh, a quite it was a quite a step forward to bring in uh, to allow medical assistance in dying. And I think it's not unusual that we would be now looking at the, the the lived experience over the last three or four years and seeing what we need to do to fine tune it to make it make it fairer to make it more um, more evenly accessible, uh, but always being very careful that it is the opinion of the individual concern, not society generally or family members or others. It's the person who actually is suffering. That's what you need to be concerned about. You were talking about uh, the uh, amendments which, which would uh, remove the clause that death uh, in the foreseeable future um, 
any sort of uh, chatter in regard to consent? Because I know there's been concerns around consent in the sense that um, people want to live the maximum life that they can in the time that they have left, but they're finding they have to give consent prior to them actually being uh, debilitated simply because at the time of death, you have to be, you have to uh, uh, be coherent and, and have the capacity to make such a decision. Often what happens in terminal illness, as one becomes sicker and sicker and sicker, they eventually just fall under the, under the spell of the medication per se, and, and may not have the capacity or be coherent enough to do that, even though they've already made the decision uh, prior. Right. Any more movement on uh, consent at death and, and where that's going to go? Well, we have, uh, there was, I come from Halifax, and uh, you're, you're referring, I think, to, to Audrey Parker, who yes. was a resident of Halifax and yeah. who suffered from a very painful form of cancer. And uh, she was, uh, she had applied for and received, uh, been approved for medical assistance in dying in, you know, the fall of 2019. Uh, she wanted to live past Christmas because Christmas was very important to her, but she had she took medical assistance in dying in November of 2019 because she was afraid that the progression of her disease and the medications that she was taking to control the pain would deprive her of her competency and her capacity uh, because the law now requires that immediately prior to the uh, the time of you receiving medical assistance and dying that you have to be you have to have the capacity and as you point out in your question um, that's a problem for people so we have we have demonstrated cases a number of cases across the country where people like Audrey Parker have had medical assistance in dying and 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 you know left us earlier than they would want to. Yeah, so, at the end of the day, she she yeah. wanted to stay as long as she could and had to had to do this earlier be in order to have the capacity to do it. And that seems yeah. like it's it that seems unfair. Yeah, I know and I talked to her I, I I knew her slightly and I talked to her several times on the phone and she was very anxious to to live into into January and that's when she wanted to to go but uh because of the concern concern about losing capacity uh, she had medical assistance in November. So that seems a sort of perverse uh, effect. So we've been pushing as an organization, and I think with a lot of support across the country for what we call Audrey's Amendment for those people, and it's not a lot of people, but people who have been already assessed and approved under the under the legislation. So this isn't hypothetical if I develop this condition and if I get to that state, that sort of thing. That's for another day. But for, the, for folks like Audrey, who've already been assessed and approved, and it's just a question, do they really need to have the capacity immediately prior to the date mm. that they want, or on the date they want to go? And I think it's a reasonable amendment uh, to prove, and we've certainly recommended to the government that they might include that in their package of amendments that they're going to bring in in March. Will but we- I don't know. We'll do that. We'll, do you think we'll always be debating this, Jim? Do you think this is going to be a work in progress? I mean, obviously, governments are, and rightly so, are erring on the side of caution as they move forward. Yeah. But this will yeah. be something we'll have to constantly analyze, will it not? I don't think there's any question. What I've noticed is, and I was involved in the in the in the in the 
debate as a senator, and I was on the joint committee of the House and the, and, and the Senate, and I it was involved in the debates. And I think all of us recognized that this was a, a this was a, we were taking a major step forward here. The government, in my view, was more cautious, more restrictive than they should have been. But I understood why they did what they did. But I think everybody recognized that we would need to take another look at it. And as I mentioned earlier, there is to be a parliamentary review that will commence in the in the summer of this year. So I think it's important that we that we continue to have a discussion about how do we make the, our our system better, fairer, more accessible, more equitable, but of course providing appropriate safeguards. And I think that you know, I think we've got it. It's a pretty good, as compared to to regimes elsewhere in the in the world. I think we've got it. We've got a good one here. But obviously, as the Quebec Court uh, identified, there are some deficiencies that we need to fix. Those, but so it is a. It's not a criticism of what's been done before, but it's just a recognition that now that we have three or four years of experience, mm-hmm. we're in a position to say, well, now we know. You know, we can. We should be more concerned about this and less concerned about that. And Here's a fix to, to to do this. And when we said that you had to have consent immediately prior to confirm your consent at the time of medical assistance in dying, well, perhaps we weren't thinking about people like Audrey Parker. Yeah. Well, now that we know this, now we can make we can make some changes and improve the system. But I would say that what unlike what's changed is that three or four years ago there was a lot of discussion about whether or not we should have medical assistance in dying. I think the discussion now is there's still people who are opposed to it for whatever reason. But mm-hmm. I think that the discussion now is, okay, how can we improve? How can we have the best system for medical assistance in dying that we can have? Uh, the government uh, holding a, a public consultation through submissions online uh, until January 27th, been open since January 13th. They've already received 200,000 uh, Canadians weighing in on this. Are you surprised by the numbers that are involved in here, in this in this survey? Yes, I, yes, I am. Uh, and I hope that uh, I, I, I completed the survey myself. I thought it was a good, a good survey. Um, and I think it's important that the government do it. I hope that the, that the that the government has a way of making sure that, you know, one person can't answer more than, you know, complete the, the questionnaire more than once. So I hope that, that the 200,000 are 200,000 individual Canadians who are motivated uh, to, to respond to the issue. I, I hope there's no abuse. It certainly points to, to the fact that this issue is resonating with Canadians. It's something they want to have a no discussion question. about. No question. I think that's very important. And there are, you know, there are some, there's a, the larger issue about so-called advanced requests. Uh, and uh, where you, we say, well, look, uh, if, you know, I'm fine now, but I might, uh, I, I know people who have um, developed terrible neurological diseases or Alzheimer's or for various forms of dementia, and I see them. And if I ever get to that point, then mm. I would want to have medical assistance to die. That whole issue is is something that is 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 there's there's broad general support all of the surveys have shown that an overwhelming percentage of Canadians favor advanced requests but when you get into detail about exactly how that would be administered yeah it becomes more complex so there needs to be more public discussion about that and i hope that 
you know, our conversation today and the, the survey that's being undertaken by the government and the parliamentary review will encourage people to think about it because these are important issues. Will this make it into people's wills? Will this start to become something that we plan for, like insurance, like burial, whatever? Well, we do it in our day-to-day lives. We, yeah. uh, you know, we go to our lawyers and we get, you know, powers of attorney and medical mm-hmm. directives and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. Do not resuscitate orders and that sort of thing. And I yeah. think that this is something that more and more people are talking about. And they would, I think that if you, if you, if you survey all the surveys have shown that most people, as I said, would want to be able to consider this as part of their end of life planning. But how do you, how do you do it? How do you make sure that there are proper safeguards? And I mean, my own view is that, that, and this was the view of our, of our joint Senate house committee, uh, that at any time after you've been diagnosed with a disease or condition that will inevitably lead to this kind of situation, uh, where, yeah, that you should be able to uh, provide an advance request and um, that should be honored by health professionals and others. So I hope we'll get to that stage, but uh, there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place before we do that. More than 200,000 people have already weighed in on the government's consultation period for assisted dying reform. That's open until January 27th online. Jim Cowan has been with us, chair of the board for Dying with Dignity Canada, and has done lots of work in the Senate in around this. Jim, thanks for the time and insight. Much uh, insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. Thanks for your call. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley is here, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. We're having an incredibly uh, in-depth discussion about medical assistance and death off air. Want to take it on air? Nah. You're, you're, you think I'm this right, is, you're wrong. You think Believe this is going, that. we have total opposite opinions of this. Yes. You think that if, um, as we relax the regulations around uh, and, and maybe even relax is the wrong word because there's other examples change, of as we, as we change as we change uh, that this is going to get out of hand. I do. I, and you I think said we should stop it now. When this thing first came into law and it was the, the argument was we will allow it for people who are terminally ill, mm-hmm. who give their clear consent mm-hmm. well in advance. We'll allow this, and that's as far as we're ever going to go. Yeah. No kids, no mental illness, no nothing else. I don't else. think I don't ever, ever, ever. That remember was the ever, argument against the yeah, people. Who I don't were remember concerned. everybody ever saying that. That's it. That's as far as we're going to go. It was. It was entirely the argument because they wanted because to then stem it goes, the. Yeah, but then it goes to a court, and then of course it's a it court does. Battle of, that, of course it does. So yeah. the government said we're not going to go past this, but you know, as soon right. as you open Pandora's box and it goes to a court case, it's, right. you, it always moves. Are you surprised by the amount of people that are for this that have responded? Uh, not entirely because it's been very well publicized by Dying With Dignity to get involved and speak your piece. So those who are very much in favor have spoken out. Look, my concern about this is twofold, uh, threefold. One is we don't let kids vote. Mm-hmm. We don't let kids drive. Yeah, but we see, don't, we you're don't let jumping drink. way ahead no, no, of things No, but here, this Scott. is one of the cases no, they're trying what, to argue that kids country, would be able to have yeah, the choice. Yeah. They, that's, uh, yeah what that country they doesn't have, matter? They yeah. are arguing now this should be something that's legal, that kids who are terminally ill mm-hmm. should be... If we don't let kids even vote, that suggests that they are not mature enough for that, and we're going to then let them decide whether they want to die. That, to me, is very troubling. I and think the, when you present a child with their... Uh, 
foreseen death, I think that changes everything. I think they mature pretty quick. I don't think you can compare that to voting or driving a car or any of that You've stuff. You also, though, Scott, you're drawing into this the discussion about depression and mental illness. So Those are all things that have to be debated and discussed, for sure. But, but suicidal tendencies, suicidal impulses can be a symptom of depression that Absolutely. can often be treated. So now you're going to say, well, children may be allowed to choose to kill themselves if you combine these things with something that could be cured, but it's very difficult right now. There's no question what they're no. going through is incredibly painful and troubling, mm-hmm. but it could be helped. And you may, with, with treatment, be okay or be wanting to live we're just, uh, look, Pandora's box is open. There's no question yeah, about yeah. it. All right. Um, let's move on. Something a little lighter. <laughs> Anything so you don't think a little lighter. You don't think we should have even gone there then? I think you, it was inevitable that as soon as you opened Open it, this, yeah, that it yeah. was going to go places you did not anticipate or probably didn't want. Do you think it was going there uh, anyway or had been in the past? We just didn't talk about it. We're open about it. Well, what was the guy out, out west who had the disabled daughter who went to prison? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mil- Milgard? Was that Milgard? No, I can't that's remember. not Milgard. Anyway, I, I can't remember saying. what it was. Yep. Um, it, sure, it's happened. Sure, it's happened. But as soon as you make it legal, it's it's a different thing. Anyway, all carry right, on. Let's move on. Uh, I didn't really know who Larry Walker was until this all started coming about. Um, but what a great... You, st- thought it was, you only know Larry, Larry the cable guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and now you're finding out that uh, in the last 24, 48 hours that he was in his last year of eligibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember hearing a quote for him saying, well, you know, it's the last year. It's not going to happen. He so said how that big, yesterday. I know. How big a thing is this for him to get this? So, okay, so for so those Larry who- Walker is the second Canadian elected into the basketball, or Baseball Hall of Fame. And for those who don't know, and sorry for those who do, and this sounds patronizing, uh, when you are eligible to get go into the Baseball Hall of Fame after five years after retirement, you can go on the ballot and then you have 10 years where you're eligible. Mm -hmm. And the Baseball Writers of America, who are people who have covered as a beat writer baseball for 10 years, so you can't be Mm -hmm. signing up today and have no context, they vote. Mm-hmm. And you must get 75% of the submitted ballots to get in. And mm-hmm. he got 76.6%. Why do you think it happened this time? Because it was his last year of eligibility? Uh, a couple of reasons. Probably that had part to do with it. But the other thing is that in baseball in particular, analytics and numbers have yeah. evolved over time. And mm-hmm. so where once upon a time you looked at a player, you looked at his batting average, you looked at how many home runs he had, and then you said, oh, he looked pretty good. Yeah. He looked like a star. Now you do these much deeper dives into certain numbers that we didn't even contemplate five or six years ago. So should he be there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And when you look at a lot of his numbers, which is now where things have gone, Mm -hmm. he stands up very favorably to many, many, many people who are already in the Hall of Fame and ironically who were no doubters to go into the Hall of Fame. What does this do for baseball in Canada? Does it do much? I don't know if it does anything. Honestly, it's nice. Um, we now have two. Fergie Jenkins is the mm-hmm. other one. Um, I think it. I think there was much more being done for baseball in Canada when Larry Walker was playing and was winning MVPs and winning batting titles and yeah. was a star. I mean, it's yeah. it's a nice thing to go when you go down to Cooperstown if you do, and I would encourage everyone to go. It's a great trip. You can get there in less than a day, and it's a great thing to see. It'll be nice to see another plaque up on the wall. Mm-hmm. Is this as much about the Expos as it is Larry yes. Walker? Sure it is. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's a link. Because there's certainly, a, exactly. It's a link to that team and that, that time and that era. And for people of a certain vintage, even who were before the Jays, the Expos were Canada's team yeah. for a while there. And that's a, it's, I mean, the Jays were certainly around when Larry Walker was playing, but it is a, 
it is a tie to that time. Is this that part memory? Is this part of the movement to try to get another team in Montreal? I wouldn't think so, but I would think that if that movement ever really caught any traction, that Larry Walker might be part of that, and mm-hmm. he would have a little more cachet now that now, you know who this is great for. Mm. Larry Walker, yeah. Hall of Famers, and I don't have the, no- the numbers in front of me, but now that he can sign his autograph and at the end of it write HOF20, uh, it's worth millions really? of dollars, millions of really? dollars to these guys. And so, like, I'm not suggesting for a second that they don't want to get in just because, even if they got no money, sure. guys want to get into the Hall of Fame. But it is it is very lucrative for these guys to have that little HOF after their autograph. I didn't know that. So how what is his response to this now after him saying that, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I got the numbers, didn't look like it's going to happen? Well, it was close. It was, was six that, ballots. Was, that, was his concern accurate? Um, did that help push it over the top? No, it didn't help push it over the top because the ballots already, already had to done. be in. Yeah. I think his concern was warranted, and he made it in by six ballots. And when you were seeing some people, well-known baseball people, who had released their ballots ahead of time, and some of them had dropped him off or didn't include him and had other players that you look at and you go, those guys weren't remotely Mm -hmm. in his league. How? Here's the two things that were playing against Larry Walker. He played a lot of his time in Montreal. Which was it? May, he may as well have been playing for the Baghdad All Stars. Yeah, <laughs> and I was going to say, what does it matter that he's Canadian? And the second part, and that well, I don't know that the Canadian, but he was certainly playing in Montreal didn't help because they were never visible. And then you go to Colorado mm-hmm. at a time when that park, it was very thin altitude, and and balls were flying out of there, and people would say, oh well, it's Colorado. Yeah, you yeah. you got to you have to knock down his numbers. And I talked about it on the show last night. The odd part about this is. You got all these people saying Larry Walker doesn't deserve this because his numbers were elevated because of the park. Mm -hmm. But any pitcher who's ever played in a big pitcher's park, we never say, well, had he played in Boston, (laughs) he would have never been in the Hall of Fame. We just say, no, he was a great pitcher who used the park to his advantage. So, like, look, it it was, it's a relief to me. Here's the big thing. The the takeaway for me of this whole thing, the big relief is there was two storylines. Derek Jeter was getting in no matter what. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The two storylines to me were, is Larry Walker getting in and are the drug guys getting in? Clemens yeah, yeah, and Bonds, yeah, the yeah. PED guys. Yeah, yeah. And had Clemens and Bonds got in, and there was a lot of talk they were going to finally mm. make the move this year and get in, and Larry Walker didn't. The, the message and the theme and the narrative behind yeah, that is, Larry Walker, point. you are a moron for not juicing up because had you done it, you'd probably be in the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. Yeah, Thankfully, point. they are still looking like they're never getting in. And, and this I think has that's the to right m- move. And this has to make guys that are have been on the ballot for a few years feel a bit more positive. You know, at the end of the day, you can still get in. You never know. If Yes, I, I agree, especially if you do have some of those numbers that the analytics people love to dive into and are favorable to you. Um, and, and, you know, there are some very interesting guys who are still on the ballot that you look at and you go, Omar Vizquel is a guy. Now, I don't know how much you know about Omar mm-hmm. Vizquel. He was a magnificent defensive shortstop, but generally it's offense that gets you into the yeah, Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. His offensive numbers are mediocre at best, but on defense, he was great. Mm-hmm. And so you just look at it and you go, um, you know what? Can a guy get in by stopping runs? We'll see. Who's on the show tonight? Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, you know who's coming on the show tonight? Do you know who Casey Levy is? Casey Levy? 
Yes. Casey Levy Related. Is, sorry, go ahead. Well, she's probably, we have a lot of TV and movie stars yeah. from this yeah. city. She is arguably, I think probably inarguably, the most successful stage yeah. actor. She plays Elsa in Frozen on Broadway, yes. has for yes. two yes. years. Yes, Bill Kelly had her on, yeah. And she is, uh, she's home for a week or two to do a performance here, so she's going to join me, and we're going to be talking about the uh, Donut Gate. Specifically, not just because of Trudeau, because there's a huge push afoot. If I, this actually plays to Trudeau's side, right. there's a push afoot to use to everyone buy local. Yeah. But is the push to buy local really a good thing? I don't know. We're going to find out. Uh, people are getting mad over the donut thing. That's partisan politics gone. That's ar- beyond. Exactly. It look, is, I'm it's not like a big you're not on, backer. Exactly. But that's stupid. I know. That's I stupid. Agree. 100%. Well, that we do agree on. That we do agree All on. All right. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sport columnist for the Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you're listening to Scott Radley tonight right here on CHML. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, in case you haven't heard, uh, sad news for Ozzy Osbourne fans. He has been diagnosed with Parkinson's. He unveiled it, uh, unveiled that yesterday, apparently diagnosed back in February. Let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Your thoughts on what uh, Ozzy Osbourne has revealed and what do you know about his health at this point? Um, well, you know, this year is starting off pretty sad if you're a, a fan of classic rock or even classic comedy with, of course, Neil Peart and uh, Terry Jones today from uh, from Monty Python. Yep. And then this um, this bit of news from Ozzy Osbourne, I, I think a lot of people are now kind of thinking, well, all those health issues that he might have had in the past, especially in the last year or two where he was canceling shows, um, is this part of that Parkinson's diagnosis? And even though that he said that he's kind of felt like this for a year, those past illnesses are not linked to this, but it looks like that, you know, this might be the time that we kind of see um, the slowing down of Ozzy Osbourne, something that I don't think anybody would have even thought you know, three or four years ago, especially at the age of 71. I mean, the guy keeps going like the Energizer bunny rabbit. Hmm. Uh, You can hear his emotion in that interview on how much he wants to get back out on the road. Is that going to be possible, do you think? I don't know. You know, people um, that that work in the medical world and the medical industry, um, you know, may go all over the map when it comes to where Ozzy might be sitting at this point. I'm sure that the sheer amount of drugs and alcohol that Ozzy um, took over his life isn't helping him now. Not that, you know, one caused the other, but I think just in terms of his health, I mean, 71 years old, he still likes to produce, he still likes to release new music and going out on the road. Um, But the last number of years, he's had a little bit of depression and guilt because he feels like his kids are out making money. His wife, Sharon, is certainly one of the most popular um, Hollywood celebrities and entertainers, and she's making great money. He's always felt like he never pulled his weight, even though that, you know, without Ozzy, um, that whole family may not have a second life, especially because it was really him and, and our love for him that came into the um to the Osborne's television show that just yeah. made them boshes of, of money over the over the last, you know, fifteen, twenty years or so. So I think, you know, it's not easy, but he's gotta feel a little bit more depressed than most because he's simply an entertainer who wants to go out on the road. Uh what about material? What about what he's been doing? Fans still love him, still relevant. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think more than ever before, you know, he, he's got a track on the newest album from Post Malone, and Post Malone is easily yeah. one of the biggest artists um, in the world right now and has been for the number of years. So he's certainly um, bringing his music into a new generation, a new audience that didn't grow up with Black Sabbath or... Ozzy's solo work in their lives. So this is a great opportunity for people to, to get to know him again. But, you know, again, like he's 71 years old and it's been a really rough 71 years for him. So, um, you know, let's just be thankful that every day that he's on this planet. How do you explain the success of that TV show? <laughs> you know, when you really... Think I think you just it, did by laughing right there. That's it. Yeah. Well, because I, uh, before that show, Ozzy's experience and his reputation was this little bit of a madman who you never knew how much was real and how much was just playing up on the rock and roll lifestyle. He bit a dove. He bit a bat's head. And then by celebrating it, he would sell like merchandise with that has to do with bats on it. So you never quite knew like what was a wink and a nod. But I think before the show... Certainly teenagers took him seriously. You know, it's it's easy to forget. But there was a time when, you know, a couple of kids actually, you know, one of them committed suicide yeah, after that. listening to Ozzy Osbourne. Yep. Another one went on a shooting rampage. So he was a little bit of a mess because he was being blamed for the downfall of the American teenager with his rock and roll and heavy metal music. It took the lovable Ozzy and Sharon and his kids to kind of predate this whole reality television show that we have now with the Kardashians and dating games and Survivor. He was really the first one. Now that we've hit uh, the 2020s, uh, how long do these acts have? Whether it's the Rolling Stones, whether it's the Aussies. I mean, my goodness, I think a lot of people were were surprised they've, they've lasted and can still perform at this time. Yeah, I'll tell you something sad. So... Um, every every year around New Year's, I, I set up a whole bunch of birthdays and anniversaries in my email. Things like today is the 50th anniversary of this album or so-and-so was born 70 years ago today. And it's kind of little reminders for me to post on Twitter or on social media. Um, when I got to around 1935, there were far more deaths than births. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that that's where you start to realize that you know, in entertainment and especially in music, um, there's very few of them that last past the age of 70. Hmm. Life on the road takes its toll. The health reasons, the the yeah. um, the amount of junk food, the sheer amount of drugs and alcohol that are at your disposal for decades, um, it does absolutely take a toll. So I think certainly in the next number of years, I think that we're going to be talking a lot more when it comes to classic artists mm. passing away. It's just a cycle of life. Eric Alper has been with us, music publicist and commentator. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk soon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.